our passage on page 944 in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Spirit, you've told us that you intercede for us. And we don't know what to pray for as we ought. So right now, would you intercede for us? Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We ask that we would have understanding of this text. We ask that we would better understand prayer. We ask that our Lord would speak to us through his word today. And however you want to answer that prayer, Lord, please answer that prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what we've been walking through together for the past seven weeks are, are really what we call the ordinary means of grace. Hearing the word, studying the word, giving, the Lord's Supper, baptism. There's nothing particularly fascinating about these things, is there? When it comes to the church gathered for worship, what we've seen through this study is that all we need is one another. 
and a Bible, or maybe not even a Bible, but somebody who's memorized it, and some bread, and a bottle of wine or, or juice, and some water. And most importantly, the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. We don't need the building, we don't need the chairs, we don't need decorations. This is, this is partly why Christianity has spread so far and wide, isn't it? Christian soldiers in a tent on a battlefield can worship together. A tribe in the middle of a desert or in a mountain village or in the jungle can worship Christ the exact same way that we can. A group of refugees on a boat can worship Jesus. They can do church just like we can. Migrants in a border town, in a slum, can do church. They can worship together. Christians in basements and house churches hiding from government officials can worship. Just like this. Christianity translates across every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every culture because Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. At that, at that moment... When Jesus said that to that woman, do you understand what he was teaching? He, he was teaching that communing with the Father, Son, and Spirit in worship would become something that was not dependent on a place, on a place like Jerusalem. So we don't pray like Daniel prayed with our faces towards Jerusalem. Because God's dwelling place is with us, and we worship in spirit, in truth. And we don't have to pray towards this building when we're at home because it's not that God's dwelling place is in this building. It's because he's in us, in spirit, in truth. At that moment, Jesus was introducing to the world what it meant to worship with the Holy Spirit present in and through Christ's redeemed. And that is the age that we live in. The hour is coming and is now here, and it is still here. We worship in spirit and in truth. And our worship, the way that we worship, the elements that we include in our worship are the elements of worship that are commanded in the New Testament, pointing us to truth, relying on the Spirit. Pointing us to truth and relying on the Spirit. We hear the Word, we read the Word. We baptize new believers. We, we partake in the Lord's Supper together. We give, we pray, and we pray, and we pray. All, all of these things we do in worship, not because they're just some idea that we have as pastors. We do them because they're commanded of us. They're lovingly commanded by God because they teach us to go deeper into the grace that we've received in Christ. They're very simple means, aren't they? They, they teach us this, this humble, childlike dependence. And the Holy Spirit who is present with us 
He uses these very ordinary means to transform us. The Holy Spirit grows you in grace if you're a Christian. He he matures you in Christ's likeness. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians in a way more beautiful than I could. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we behold the glory of the Lord where? How? In His Word, in the Lord's Supper, in baptism, all these different ways that the Lord has commanded and given us by His grace to keep us focused on Christ. So so if you're a Christian, it's because Christ died for you to reconcile you to the Father. And the Spirit has awakened you to that reality. And because you have the Spirit in you, the Spirit is transforming you. And and the point of this whole series that we've been going through is that the Spirit is simply using these ordinary means to do this. In each of these means of grace, we're beholding Christ. And through beholding Christ, we're becoming like Him. The means the Spirit works through that we'll focus on this morning is prayer. The last one. Not because it's least important, but because it brings it all together. So so in what way do our prayers transform us into Christ-likeness? How do we grow in grace through prayer? If you're like me, and I, I assume you are, you find prayer kind of hard, kind of boring sometimes, and definitely distraction-prone. There's no other time when I am more <clears throat> tempted to distraction than when I'm trying to pray. It's hard to focus when I'm trying to pray. I mean, here, think about it. Here we are, And we know, this isn't a mystery to us, we know that we have the privilege of talking to the almighty creator, redeemer, sustainer of all creation. Very God of very God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we know what a friend we have in Jesus. And I'm, Lord, thank you for blessing me. Thank you for saving me. You're such a good God. Thank you for your mercy. I'm sorry that I was prideful today. Please forgive me. Would you give me wisdom? I messed up again. Oh, oh, and Lord, please save my neighbor. He needs you. Holy Spirit, lead him to Christ. And then, speaking of my neighbor, <laughs> did I remember to take my trash out? <laughs> right? Did, did I get it out? I don't think I did. I need to take the trash out. Mental note. Oh, and what else is on my mental checklist while I'm looking at it? That, that meeting with that one guy later today, what time was that? And... Baseball practices tomorrow. What, what are the drills that I was going to have the kids do? And what do I need to get at the office before I go home? And did I change the oil in the car, speaking of going home? Do you see where I'm going? Have you experienced this? <laughs> if it's not your own mind distracting you, it's your cell phone across the room. Right? Pick me up. Look 
get me. Don't you miss me? Or it's a dog barking, or my feet are cold, or just out of nowhere, completely out of nowhere, there's a scratch, an itch in the middle of my back, and there's no way it's going away, and I'm not going to be able to concentrate on anything until I get up and scratch on the doorpost, right? And you're probably thirsty too. (laughs) Once we begin to pray, our flesh and the devil throw up everything, everything they've got to stop us. And we very, very easily quit. Sometimes I will stop praying mid-sentence, not even realizing that I was praying. You know why that is? It's not because you have an attention deficit. You can pay attention. I know you can. Do you know why the devil doesn't want you to pray? It's because God answers prayer. God uses our prayers to change the universe. God is using our prayers to complete what he began all the way back to Abraham. Abraham prayed, and through Abraham's prayers, God rescued Lot. Moses prayed, and through Moses' prayers, God rescued Israel. Daniel prayed. And Daniel 9 tells us what he was praying about. In in that upper room, three times a day, Daniel 9 says that he was praying on behalf of Israel. He was asking that God would forgive the sins of Israel. That God would rescue his people from exile. And God answered that prayer. You'll find most of the prophets in your Bible are writing down their prayers, and you'll also find that most of their prayers are answered. God answers prayer. You you might remember when we were studying Matthew 9, and Jesus looks up over the crowds, and he sees them with compassion. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then what does he tell his disciples to do? Go? No. Pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And God answers the prayer by sending his disciples. Jesus told his disciples, pray for your enemies. He told them, pray that you wouldn't be drawn into temptation. He teaches us to pray for our next meal, to pray for strength, to pray for faith. Why so much prayer? Because the heavenly kingdom Jesus is bringing into this world is not of this world. Every task that's to be accomplished in in Christ's kingdom is heavenly. And it is of God. And God uses our prayers to accomplish these spiritual realities. That's why Jesus himself was constantly praying when you read the Gospels. He's always praying. Over and over again, each of the Gospels tells us he would withdraw himself to some desolate place and pray. And what are the types of things he's praying for? He's praying that he would endure the task the Father has given him. He's praying that the disciples would not lose their faith. He's praying that they would be unified 
as one. That they'd be protected from falling prey to the evil one. He prays that they'd know the love that he and the Father have for them. Prays that they'd fulfill the mission that he's given them. And Paul, Christ's apostle, he follows suit. You read Paul's letters and he's constantly telling us that he's praying for the churches. He's praying that they'd be strengthened in the gospel, that they'd have power from the Holy Spirit to continue in the faith, to grow deeper in their faith. At the end of Ephesians, we get this famous armor passage. Many of you know this. We, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And then Paul describes the armor that we've been given for this battle. And then what does he say to do with this armor? Storm the Senate. Take over the public schools. No, what does he say to do? He says, pray. Pray for the saints. Pray for the missionaries. Pray for your own strength. Pray for your boldness in Christ. Pray for the gospel to go out and be effective. Why? Because prayer is the means that God has ordained that he would use to change everything. Your prayers. My prayers. Prayer, according to the will of God, is powerful and effective. And because it's effective, the world... And our flesh and the devil will do anything to keep us from it. Anything. In our flesh, we, we begin to think, well, if God is in control, he doesn't really need me to pray. Or, or, or some of us will think, well, if, if God's going to do what he's going to do, no matter what, well, then my prayer can wait till tomorrow. Our, our, our worldly rationalizing takes over our puny little brains and our cold hearts. And so we just give in to thinking that watching reruns of The Office is somehow a, a better use of our time. And then what happens? Well, then we hear a sermon on prayer. And we get this little twinge of guilt about not praying enough. And then we resolve to pray more. And it lasts about a day, maybe two, for you strong ones. And then we go through that cycle again. Apathy, guilt, resolution, action. Apathy, guilt, resolution, action. Over and over and over again. And until we either give up or we just become cynical to the whole process. Well, my aim this morning is to allow God's word to help us break that cycle. I believe you all know the power of prayer. So I'm not going to preach a sermon about the power of prayer. Even non-Christians have a sense that prayer is effective. Thoughts and prayers, right? My thoughts and prayers are with you. I don't need to convince you that prayer works. My aim is instead to help adjust your motivation just by a few degrees. Because it's not, it's not just because prayer works that we should pray. And it's not because you feel guilty 
that you should pray unless you're confessing sin. <laughs> so, so through your prayers, this is what I want you to see today. This is our main point. Through your prayers, Christ is becoming more glorified in you because you are being transformed in his likeness. I'll say it again. Through your prayers, Christ is becoming more glorified in you because you are being transformed into his likeness. In other words, prayer is worship. Prayer is worship. Now, how is that? Remember how in each of these means of grace, the Spirit's always working on our behalf? That's why it's called grace. Romans 8 is the text that tells us what the Spirit is doing when we're praying. That's why I've selected that text for us this morning. So let me give you some context. In Romans 8, Paul is making the argument that as Christians, you should know this already, we're not the same as we used to be. Through, through being given the Holy Spirit, we've been born again into Christ. And, and then when we live according to the Spirit in us, we live according to Christ's righteousness. The Spirit in us helps us put to death the deeds of the flesh. He reminds us we are children of the Father. He gives us confidence in the Father's presence rather than fear of condemnation. So we have confidence. We go to the Lord's Abba Father rather than fearing condemnation. And then, this is important for this morning. In chapter 8, verse 17, and in verse 18, he tells us two very important things that set the context for the rest of this. In verse 17, he says, If you're in Christ, you will suffer. And he doesn't tell us what that suffering is exactly. I think it's because it's going to be different for everybody. He just says that suffering with Christ is necessary to being glorified in Christ. So, so before we go one step further, I just want to give you this pastoral encouragement. Do not detest the suffering that you are enduring. I don't care what it is. Do not hate it. Whatever stage of life you're in, young, middle-aged, Old, single, married, divorced, widowed, do not despise your suffering and think that somehow God has forgotten you. That's unbelief. Your suffering is what God is using to make you more like Christ. That's what we get from verse 17. Secondly, though, in verse 18, Paul tells us that this suffering is temporary. Look what he says. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So, so, you see what he's saying? Even though suffering is necessary, it is momentary. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians a light momentary affliction. It's momentary. It's of this present time. But compared to the glory that's to be revealed in you at Christ's return, it's nothing. It's not even worth comparing. He says, it's that, it's that little ant you stepped on in the first half mile of your marathon. 
It's nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed in you. The glory we have in Christ is unimaginable. It's eternal. The suffering of this world is knowable, and it is temporary. Totally different categories. That, that's the baseline instruction regarding this suffering. It's going away. It's going away. Put your hope in Christ and patiently await the glory that is to be revealed in you. So that's our outlook as Christians. Our hope is in the one day glory that is to be revealed in us. And yet, here we are. We are here and in the here and now and every day somebody says something hurtful. Every day you see pain around you. Every day you feel pain. Every day some bad memory that you wish would just be erased is stirred up in your mind. Somebody disappoints you. You look at the bank account and it's going this way. The mortgage seems like it's never going to be paid off. Diseases are spreading. Starvation is killing people. Mothers are killing their own children, and the world is celebrating it as virtuous. Fathers are abandoning their families. There are few people that you can trust. All that we hold dear as Christians seem to be questioned by the world around us. The things we believe are most life-giving, the world says, that's harmful. The suffering that is of this present time seems like it's never going away. In fact, as we saw in Romans 8, the suffering in this present time is so bad that it's not just us Christians who are longing for Christ's return and the glory that comes with him. All of creation is enduring this in-between time when we're waiting for Christ's return. In verse 19, creation is waiting with eager longing. In verse 20, creation is waiting because creation itself is in bondage. In verse 21, creation awaits the freedom from corruption. And so, what does that waiting sound like? What does that suffering sound like for creation? Paul says, it's a groaning. When you, when you hear that word groaning, it's not so much a complaining. It's more like the sound of a giant cargo ship when it's sinking. Metals twisting and groaning against giant steel beams. I can't replicate the sound, but you know what I'm talking about. The ship, the ship is waiting to be rescued from this slow sink. It's crushing in on itself. Or to put it in earth words, the tectonic plates are grinding against one another and the earth shudders and groans. In verse 23, we as Christians, just like creation, we're also groaning because we're also waiting. We're waiting for our finalization as adopted sons and daughters. For us, 
the suffering of this present age and the longing for the glory that we'll receive in Christ, that leads to our groaning. That's why we groan. It's not a complaining. Again, it's much more like Habakkuk says, Lord, how long? Or like John says, or how we sang this morning, Lord, come quickly. The Christian life is a life of waiting. And Paul says it is in this waiting that we are saved. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Again, you've heard me say this. The age we live in now, it's the age of the ear, right? Not the age of the eye, but the age of the ear. We're waiting for Christ's return. We cannot see Jesus yet. We're not supposed to see Jesus yet. To see Jesus now is a hastening of something that we're waiting for, longing for. It's so much a part of the Christian life. Paul says it's in this waiting, in this hope that we're saved. We can't see what is coming. We can't see the glory of Christ yet. We can't even imagine it. If we could conceive of it now, it wouldn't be called hope. But isn't it amazing that the hope that we have right now, that is our salvation. That hope is what keeps us centered. It keeps us walking according to the Spirit, according to the righteousness of God in us. The Christian Life is a life of waiting in hope. And how do we wait? Look at verse 25. Patiently. We hope for what we do not see and we wait for it with patience. That's our context, okay? We are awaiting, suffering, and groaning, but ever hoping people living in a waiting, hoping, groaning creation. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes that that Christianity is supposed to be lollipops and rainbows. That we're supposed to be happy, happy, happy all the time and upbeat about everything. And everything is supposed to be fun and cool and exciting. Friends, that is not Christianity. It's not That's not what Romans 8 is talking about. Christianity is not about being fulfilled in the here and now. It is hoping. And that hoping happens in the gathered assembly of believers. When we hear the word preached together, we're reminded of our hope. And we're strengthened all the more. When we read the word... And we study the word. We're reminding one another of our hope and we're longing for more faith that we would have more confidence in those promises. When we sing, we're hoping and we're encouraging one another in that hope. When we give, we're responding in faith by the grace of God and loosening our trust in this world and committing our hope in Christ, to Christ. We're always hoping together as Christ's church. 
And the only seeing we get are these two symbols that Dustin taught us about. The Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are, those are where we see. In the Lord's Supper, our faith is nourished by the Spirit feeding us. And we grow more confident in what we hope for. In baptism, our flesh is symbolically drowned and buried and reminded of the life that we have in the Spirit. We never get past hoping until our hope is fulfilled in Christ's return. And it's in this waiting time when we cannot physically see what we're hoping for. It's in that time, in this time, that we are weak. We're so weak. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Is that just not your testimony? In this time of waiting, if we are on our own, if we're all by ourselves, what happens? We give up. We quit. We fail to continue in hope. For some people, that weakness expresses itself in despair and depression. A literal giving up of hope. If you're alone, you turn from hoping into your own thoughts, fears, and emotions and into this inward spiral into darkness. For some people, that weakness doesn't show itself as depression, at least not early on. They don't turn inward. They go on a quest to find pleasure, to find escape in the here and now. It's, it's one thing to the next, one thing to the next. I can't hope in the eternal. I can't wait that long, but I can hope in the here and now. Maybe this next event, maybe this next experience, maybe that's where I'll find fulfillment. Maybe it's this next job or this next car or this next house, or this next vacation, the next girlfriend. Always searching, always searching, always searching, hoping to have hope fulfilled in this life. And it never comes. It never comes. We are weak. We cannot endure the weight for the eternal on our own. We cannot keep hoping on our own. Once saved, always saved. It's total hogwash if you're on your own. And deep down inside, we all know that's true, and we're all terrified that that's true. But there's good news. Christ's work for us has provided someone we cannot do without. Look at verse 26. This is where we get the good news. This is, this is precious. If you skip this verse, you're doomed to despair. Because you're on your own if you skip verse 26. But if you embrace verse 26 as a promise, promise for Christ's church, then you can keep hoping. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And what weakness is he talking about? The weakness of our flesh, right? This, this fragile jar of clay it's taking hits from every side. The weakness that he's talking about is the weakness of our impatience. 
The weakness of our ignorance of the future glory that's to be revealed in us. The weakness of our ignorance of who God really is. The Spirit helps us in that weakness. And how does He help us? Keep going in verse 26. This is how He helps us. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. And before we keep going, stop right there. Paul does not say, we sometimes do not know what to pray for. Does he? He does not say, when we don't know what to pray for. No, it's a matter of fact. We do not know what to pray for. We do not know. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. And that ought implies that we should know what to pray for. We should know because of the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus taught us to pray. We know to pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. We know to pray that God's will be done. We know to pray for our daily bread. We know to pray for forgiveness and for help forgiving others. We know to pray that we would avoid temptation. We know those things. And yet, because of our weakness, we do not know what to pray. Let me show you where we see this reality. It's not saying you're stupid, okay? Look, look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. This is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Paul, Paul prays in chapter 3, verse 18, that the church would have strength to comprehend... With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Now, just pause. Why do they need the strength to comprehend? Because they're weak, right? This weakness is not just, it's not just the weakness of the Roman church. All of us, they're weak. The Ephesians are weak and Paul is weak. So he's praying for their strength in their weakness to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and the verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, why do they need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Because on their own, it surpasses knowledge. They can't understand it. Our knowledge is weak. But the love of Christ is greater. And so Paul has to pray that they could grasp something that in their flesh, in our flesh, we're incapable of grasping. And then verse 20. This is it's beautiful. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what? Than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, I can't conceive of what I should really be praying for right now for you. I'm weak. And I know that God is able to do far more than I ask or think because I'm weak. So I'm just going to rely on the Spirit who's in me and in you to pray for you according to God's will. You see how it works? Christian, you are infinitely weak compared to the Holy Spirit. So am I. 
So is the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, empowered by the Spirit. We're weak. So what does the Spirit do? In spite of your weakness, rather, because of your weakness, He prays for you. He intercedes for you. That means He goes before the Father on your behalf. In our always until Jesus comes back weakness, the Spirit helps us. We do not know what to pray for. We do not know what God is capable of. We do not know His will the way we should. We don't know what He's doing in us. We don't know why we're going through what we're going through. Our fragile weakness stops us. So the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there's the third time you see that word groanings again, isn't it? Groanings. There it is again. Creation is groaning. The Christian is groaning. And the Spirit is groaning in you. Only His groaning is a sanctifying, purifying, God's will speaking groaning. It's a holy groan. You can't hear it. I cannot hear it. But God can hear it. Because he searches the Spirit's mind. And when you read it this way, you can see very clearly, this is not a proof text for a prayer language. This deep groaning from the Spirit has nothing to do with things that are coming out of your mouth. You're not shamala, 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 and God understands you, and you get this super spiritual experience. That is not what this verse is about. But this is about the grace of God, not speaking in tongues. What's happening is we're praying for something that yet again shows our ignorance of God's will. Oh Lord, please help these lottery numbers to fall right where I get them. Lord, give me the Powerball this time. Can't you see how much good I would do for you if you would let that last number fall for me? And the Spirit is just... He's praying. He's praying for you through your myopic weakness. And the Father, knowing the mind of the Spirit, isn't even hearing your ridiculous prayer. He's hearing a a prayer that is perfectly in line with His own will. He hears something more like, forgive your child for his greed and for his lack of contentment. Give him patience as he waits for you Strengthen his faith. Make him more like Jesus. Do you see the grace? Look at verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's big. So we have this truth in Scripture. You read 1 John, we studied on Wednesday nights. We we know from Scripture that if we ask anything according to God's will, He hears us and He answers those prayers. And, And the Spirit, the person who wrote 1 John, is doing just that. He's praying for you and me according to the will of God. 
even when you don't know what that is. Do you see the grace? You were saved by grace. You're being saved by grace. How? As you grow in grace because of your prayers. Because your prayers are being translated by the Holy Spirit in you according to the will of God for you. According to the steadfast love and mercy of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all working together to make sure those whom Christ died for make it all the way to glory. Despite our weakness. Despite our weakness. And it gets better. And you're like, how could this possibly get better? It gets better. If God is sovereign, what's going to be, this is going to be better because it's going to be more than you can imagine. Let me show you. There's, there's more grace. Look at verse 28. Look what Paul says. And we know, and you can almost see him just pounding his fist, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know? This isn't a baseless aphorism. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't just something to embroider. This isn't feel-good theology. The truth of Romans 8.28 is grounded in the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we know that all things will work out together for good, for the believer who's called according to God's purpose? How do we know that's true? Because the Spirit who indwells the believer according to the work of Christ, is praying according to the Father's will. And the Father is answering those prayers one after another after another, over and over and over again. He's answering the prayers of the Spirit until His work in you and His will for you are complete. And what is, what is God's purpose What does completeness look like? Why has he called you into Christ to begin with? What's his will for you? It's this, that Jesus Christ would be glorified in you. And because that's God's will for you, you, Christian, are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. You're growing in grace. By the work of the Holy Spirit who is praying in you, for you. And when is he doing this? When you're praying. When you're praying. When you're praying, you're being transformed. Your mind is being Changed. Your desires are being changed. Your affections are being changed. Not by you, but by the grace of God working in you. So, what is our application? Christian, pray. The prayers of his people are the means that God is using to reconcile all things to himself. All things, including you and me. Our prayers are the means that the Spirit is using to glorify Christ in you. Your prayers are worship. 
Your prayers are worship. So pray. Pray with the freedom that you sing. Pray with the freedom that you sing these gospel truths you didn't write. Pray with the joy you have when you read chapters like Romans chapter 8. Golden promises that you didn't write. Things that you couldn't even conceive to ask for. Pray because Christ has saved you. The Spirit is working in you and the Father loves you. I think the encouragement that I got reading Romans chapter 8 is that my prayers don't have to be perfect. In fact, they're not expected to be. I'm weak. You're weak. And in our weakness, we are free to pray as children, like children. Because we are His children, saved by grace. And by the grace of God, you will grow. You will. You will grow into one whose life will glorify Christ more and more. And more and more as you hear the word and as you study the word, as you grow in grace, what happens? Your prayers more and more align with God's will. They will sound more like what the Spirit's already praying for you. So not so much translation has to happen. (laughs) But for now, in hope... Pray with thanksgiving. Pray with pleading. Pray for endurance and joy. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for the lost. Pray knowing that no matter what, Christ is going to be glorified. Pray because your prayers are worship. Amen. Let's pray.